At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. We're continuing this morning in our fall sermon series in the letter that we call 1 Peter. This letter was written to several churches in modern-day Turkey. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are the three areas that Peter mentions there in verse 1 that he's writing to. So he's writing to several churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And uh, this is one of, this is Jesus' closest disciple. So Jesus had the crowds, and he had the 12, and he had the three, Peter, James, and John. But even amongst those three, Peter was his Titus disciple. And so here we are hearing from him, the apostle Peter, giving instruction to these churches that he refers to there in verse one as exiles in a foreign land. Um, Living in a foreign land isn't easy. You need encouragement, you need instruction. And so that's what the apostle is providing for the churches. The first thing we looked at last week in verses three through 12 is that Peter leads these exile Christians in worship. If we have a worshipful spirit, that'll help us persevere on our pilgrimage in this foreign land. And so that's what Peter does beginning. He praises God and he leads us in praising God for our secure salvation. He leads us in praising God for revealing our faith through suffering and God's purposes through our pain. And then finally there we saw in verses 10 through 12, he praises God for that salvation has come. The prophecies have been fulfilled. That was all last week. All praise to God, instructing us in the substance of the gospel for which we praise God. Then really quickly in verse 13, Peter turns a corner and he's already going to begin to talk about the implications of this gospel on our lives. And so that's where we are this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on God as father, him who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, you were ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in these last times for your sake. You, who through Jesus are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. What do you hope for? So we're 37 days from the presidential election. What do you hope for? Or we're just a few hours away from the Lions' next kickoff. What do you hope for there? Hope is a powerful thing. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, King Solomon writes, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now this proverb is not talking about our physical heart, it's talking about our heart as the center of who you are. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That means there's a connection between our hearts, our health, and our hope. So when we hope our candidate will win the election and he wins, we feel great and start thinking the next four years are gonna be amazing. And when the Lions, when we hope that the Lions will win the game and they win, we start thinking, this is gonna be the year. Because there's a connection between our heart, our health, and our hope. Conversely, some people will cry when their candidate loses. Some folks will get drunk when their team loses. If you're a Lions fan, going to be getting drunk a lot. (laughs) Why do we have these kinds of reactions? Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. You pin your hopes on a political candidate or a sports team that doesn't win, then you get the blues. But the heart gets even more sick when we set our hope on weightier things, like a career, our marriage, a first child, Hope is an important theme in 1 Peter, and so this series is geared to help us not set our hope on good things that are not ultimate things. This is why Peter describes us as exiles in chapter 1, verse 1, immigrants. We are those without a permanent home on this earth. Because think about it. If you're at a hotel, for example, if you're at a hotel for a few days, You may not love the bland paintings on the wall. You may not be crazy about the wall colors or the stiff furniture, but you're not gonna go on Amazon and start purchasing new paintings and new furnitures because it's not your home. It's a hotel room. And you can enjoy your stay at the hotel. It's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's not a permanent thing. It's not home. So you don't tie your hopes to it. Likewise, our career has a place. Marriage has a place. So do family and nation and sports and money. But what's their place in your life? Are they good things or are they ultimate things? Are they goods or are they gods? Because as goods, these earthly things are great. But as gods, they're disastrous. So Peter says to us, you are an exile on earth. Your stay is temporary. This is a hotel. Don't see it as your permanent home and don't make its goods your permanent hope. So instead of these perishable things, what can we hope for? Well, the apostle comes right out from the beginning of his letter and says to us in chapter one, verse three, we have all been born again to a living hope. 
As Christ followers, we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. This is what we looked at last week. And today the apostle continues on this theme by telling us there in verse 13, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ, at the second revelation of Christ is what he's referring to. That is something you can hang the weight of your entire life on. Just think about what he's saying. He says, set your hope fully, not half-heartedly, not also consumed with this world and enamored with the things you see, but fully set your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ in the end. So we as Christians long for the return of Christ because he is bringing to us grace. This makes me think of growing up in elementary school, late elementary school, middle school, during the summers, my parents would leave us at home while they were at work, and if I did something to get in trouble, did something to one of my brothers to upset them, then whichever one of them was upset at me, they would say, just wait until mom gets home. And I would have this sick feeling pretty much the whole rest of the day until she got home, fretting over the judgment that was to come. Well, here's the thing. The return of Jesus, which will be the most awesome and horrifying event in all of history, this event will have nothing but grace for the Christian. It's the Christmas morning to end all Christmas mornings, except that it's not Christmas. It's not the first coming of Christ. It's his second coming. It's the return of the king. It's the full revelation of his glory and power and wealth and wisdom. And for the Christian, it's the full revelation of his grace. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be ours at the revelation of Jesus. This is what's coming for you, Christian. And this is why Peter tells us, set our hope fully on that grace. It's unshakable, imperishable, and yet future. And what we're going to see today is that this future grace transforms our conduct today. Future grace transforms our conduct Today. So I couldn't enjoy myself in the present if I knew I was going to pay for my misdeeds when my mom returned home. But just imagine your elation if you knew that your king, the king of the universe, has nothing for you but grace upon his return. Sweet, affirming, welcoming grace. That grace transforms our conduct today. It's what the apostle's saying. So let's see this in the text itself. Look at verse 13. Leading up to his command for us to set our hope fully on future grace, the apostle adds a couple of modifying phrases. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be yours at the revelation of Christ. So that first phrase Preparing your mind for action, it literally says, and you can see this if you're looking at the KJV, it literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. Pretty awkward. What Peter is referencing is that in the ancient Middle Eastern world, people would wear tunics or robes for everyday dress. And you can imagine, it is hard to run in a robe. The Cloth gets in your way as your legs try to stride for you. So if you wanted to run, you had to pull your tunic up between your legs and tie it in such a way or gird your loins, and this would free up your legs to run. 
So this is kind of awkward in the way that professional runners today have awkwardly short shorts. In order to activate their legs, they've got to do so. And we have a similar phrase related to activity and our clothing. Roll up your sleeves. When you tell someone, roll up your sleeves, you're saying, hey, get busy. Move your sleeves out of the way and engage. That's what Peter's saying here. Yes, you have a secure salvation in Christ and we have future hope and this hope should activate us. Prepare your minds for action. Similarly, he says, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. Now again, translating this literally, Peter doesn't say be sober-minded. He says, be sober. The ESV translators that we read, they're trying to help us understand the sense of this word. And so they add, be sober-minded. But very literally, he says, be sober. So think of it. You ever tried to get anything done with a drunk person? You ever tried to take action on something with a drunk person? Well, you can imagine they are not very helpful. Prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that is yours in Christ. This future grace transforms our conduct, causes us to sober up and take action. And as we look at the rest of this passage, We're gonna see two ways that our Christian identity as recipients of future grace transforms our lives today. First, Peter says, if God is your father, be holy. If God is your father, be holy. Look once more at verse 14. The apostle says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions or desires of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and he quotes Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, where God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, Peter continues, if you call on God as father, God who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So you see twice there, Peter addresses our conduct. Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Then in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So the apostle is pressing the point here. Hey, Christianity is not just about what you believe, it's also about how you behave. Christianity is not just about your spirituality, it is about your activity. It's about how you live, what you do, how you conduct yourself. But notice, Peter doesn't just say, now you guys, stop sinning, be good. No, he roots our obedience in our identity as the children of God. In verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And he goes on to say that as obedience children, there should be a family resemblance between us and our heavenly father. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then again, he quotes Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, where God calls on Israel, and he uses strong language here in this quote. 
God doesn't say, be holy as I am holy. Rather, he says, you shall be holy as I am holy. Right? So it's one thing to tell someone to do something. It's another thing to tell someone they will do something. That's what God and the apostle are saying of us as God's children. If indeed he is our father, we will be holy as he is holy. Because as he goes on to say in verse 17, the one we call father, we also know as judge. The impartial judge of the universe who will hold each one to account for his deeds. And so Peter concludes there in verse 17, conduct yourself with fear during the time of your exile. What's he talking about when he says conduct yourself with fear? Well, he's not talking about living in abject terror or anxious dread before God. Rather, he's talking about living before God with a holy reverence. In the same way, at least most of the time, ideally, we wouldn't just do whatever, we wouldn't just say whatever in front of our dads. No, there's a respect, a dignity he's owed as our dad, and we show our respect by the way we conduct ourselves in his presence. So if you know God as Father, be holy as he is holy. Conduct yourself with reverence and fear during the time of your exile. Show that your hope is in heaven by living a holy life today. But this takes effort, right? To live in holiness, to not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, it takes girding up the loins of your mind, rolling up your sleeves, being sober-minded. So I've had many close friends in the faith Brothers who came to Christ with long, ingrained habits of abusing pornography, objectifying women. And you think that passion for that experience just evaporated upon trusting in Christ? Not always. Not most of the time. No, the passion, the desire of their former ignorance still flickered in their heart. But over time, the closer and closer we draw to God, the more and more we loved him, the less and less we lust. And you can apply that experience to any other sin struggle. The love of money, envy of others, bitterness towards enemies, selfishness in relationship, abuse of substances, and on and on. The passions and desires wrapped up in this wickedness still live in our hearts. But Christian, that's not who you are anymore. You are obedient children, and God is holy, and God is judge. Conduct yourself with reverent fear and devoted holiness to the Lord throughout your pilgrimage. Secondly, Peter calls us toward transformed conduct by saying, if Jesus is your redeemer, be faithful. If Jesus is your redeemer, be faithful. So in the previous verses, the apostle rooted his call for our conduct to be transformed because of who we are, God's children, and because of who God is, he is holy. But in these next few verses, he grounds his call for our conduct to be transformed because of what God has done. Namely, he redeemed us through Christ. So let's look at these verses again. Verses 18 through 20. 
Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter tells us that we've been ransomed or redeemed. What does that mean? It means that we've been liberated. So in the Old Testament, Israel was ransomed, redeemed, liberated from Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, Moses, looking back on the exodus out of Egypt, he comments to Israel, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord redeemed you from the house of slavery. The Lord redeemed you from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15, Moses later puts it this way. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. So the concept of redemption being ransomed is about liberation from slavery. For Israel, it was liberation from Egypt. For Christians, it is liberation from sin, or as Peter puts it here, liberation from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. See, many today would say that our desires and feelings only and always are to be affirmed and celebrated because it's who we are. But Peter here, in a real way, says we need to be liberated from our desires and feelings, the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. So how are we ransomed? Middle of verses 18 through 19, Peter says, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. So church, there is only one thing that can liberate you, the only thing that can take us out of slavery of our ignorance, out of our futile ways of life, it's the precious blood of Christ, Jesus, a lamb without blemish or spot. So sadly, there are versions of Christianity today, often referred to or thought of as progressive Christianity, where any mention of blood, or sacrifice, or ransom, it's seen as absurd. It's seen as out of fashion. And instead, these groups want a God that conforms to our culture's ever-evolving morality and sensibilities. And they see nothing wrong with our passions and desire. They say, in fact, unless you're conformed to your passions, unless you follow your heart, you'll never be happy. Again, For them, what we feel, what we want, is always and only to be affirmed. But the apostle says, do not be conformed to the passions or desires of your former ignorance. And Jesus' death redeems you from your futile ways. Friend, Jesus offers you his blood. He has nothing to offer of eternal value for you but his redeeming death. His teaching will do you no good without his cross. We don't just need a teacher. We need a liberator, a redeemer. We need someone who has the power to transform our hearts, someone who can take us 
out of slavery, someone who can replace our greed with generosity, someone who can exchange our lust with purity, our vanity with purpose, our anger with patience, our arrogance with humility. There are millions of teachers out there who can give you advice, give you good ideas. There is only one redeemer for all of humankind, and without him, we are slaves. Conduct yourself with holy fear. Conduct yourself not according to your former passions, because you know you were redeemed from those futile ways of living. If Jesus is your redeemer, be faithful. In verse 20, Peter elaborates on the redeemer. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You through him who are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the apostle affirms that Jesus just didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus didn't just make up a religion on the spot in 30 AD. No, he was known before the foundation of the world for your sake. For your sake, he was revealed in these last times. Church, for your sake, he was raised from the dead and seated in glory so that when you believe in him, when you trust in him, your faith and hope are anchored in God, not in some politician, not in some football team, not in silver or gold or the puny passing pleasures the world has to offer. No, when you trust in Jesus, your faith and hope are in God. Jesus, who existed before the foundation of the world, provides a solid hope beyond this world. Hope anchored in God himself. And this changes everything for how we live today. So how bent, how bent out of shape are you over a presidential campaign or a ball game? How hopeful are you in worldly success to give you solid hope beyond this world? Brothers and sisters, every promise this world extends to us is going to fail us. The promise of relational success, the promise of political success, the promise of financial success, the promise of familial success, as important and good as these things may be, their promise is uncertain. And so the apostle calls us, set your hope fully on the grace to be given us at the revelation of Christ, and let's live as those whose hope is in heaven. We are exiles on earth because our hope is in heaven. We are just passing through, and this isn't our permanent residence. Let's live like it. Holy, humble, faithful, liberated sons and daughters of God. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word with prayer and then praise. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning. We are grateful for the hope we have at the revelation of Christ. Lord, we love that Jesus has come, that he lived, died, and rose on our behalf, and we love that he is coming again. 
And at his revelation, you will only have grace for your children. Lord, raise our anticipation at his next coming. And may our hope in that have exceed every earthly hope we have. Lord, create in us a longing for the revelation of Christ. Create in us a longing for the grace that will be bestowed upon us when he is revealed in his fullness. And Father, I pray until then, you would, by your spirit, enable us to live for you, to conduct ourselves in a way that shows the difference you've made in our lives by giving us the secure hope. Lord, change us now. Empower us now. Help us to prepare our minds for action, being sober-minded. Empower us to be holy as you are holy, to be faithful children to you. Lord, we pray for you to do this, and we sing now this song of commitment that we follow Christ the one who will be revealed and give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.